We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who show. The show has got a new doctor. Britain has got a new prime minister, but we're still here. I'm Dave. (laughs) And I'm Rob. And it's our main flagship episode for October 2022. And Rob, if you had told me when we recorded our last monthly show that mm-hmm. a 90-minute special with a regeneration would not be the automatic biggest story of this month... <laughs> <laughs> I know! We would not have believed it, but it seems to be the case. I'm not saying it's not the biggest, but there it has proper competition for biggest story of the month, and, and more than one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, earlier in the week, we watched the show, we did a hot take, then it was like, oh, well, later this week, we're going to record this nice, frothy, little fluffy episode, and that'll be the end of the month. <laughs> and all this news has broken. All this news has broken, so we'll get into that in a moment. But our topic for this month is Doctor Who actors in other roles. We're going to go through each of the people who have played the Doctor, and we're going to pick our favourite, best most interesting, most noteworthy performance that they've done outside of Doctor Who. Maybe give you, the listeners, a bit of an idea of some stuff to go and see your favourite Doctor in if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. I am too. Now, we'll note that we did our hot take on The Power of the Doctor, which was released a couple of days ago, so we've mm-hmm. spoken all about that. I think, Rob, that we're both fairly, fairly much of the same view as we were in that hot take. I think so. And it's funny, you know, a lot of listeners have have written in and said, gosh, you guys disagreed so much. I'm not sure we disagreed that much, but we scored it very differently. Yeah, I think we both thought that the plot was a bit of a mess. That's right. We both thought that there was a lot of good and nostalgic, nice stuff over the top of it and that Sasha Duan was very good. I think where we disagreed was how much the good carried us through the bad. I think that's fair, because those first three things you mentioned, we were kind of in lockstep on them. And so when they were saying, oh, my God, you disagreed so much, I thought, "Mm, I'm not sure we did. Yes, I think you're right. It's how it came across in the end, I think. Yes. So, look, we've got a couple of big news stories, so we better crack in. Yes. Now, the first is something we said we were going to hold over from our hot take to this episode here. And that Mm. is, of course, the trailer that came after the power of the Doctor, which gave us our first look at Shudi Gatwa's Doctor. It gave us a bigger look at the 14th Doctor, and that's probably the first bit of proper news, Rob. RTD mm. himself has said that the Doctor that comes after Jodie Whittaker is the 14th Doctor, yep. and Shudi Gatwa will be the 15th Doctor. And I think that makes sense because Jodie, we have seen Jodie turn into Tennant. You know, whatever Tennant is meant to be. Why, why has he got that face? We don't know. But she has definitely canonically turned into him. Yes, but I think there was always that possibility that like the John Hurt inserted Doctor, the War Doctor, maybe this person would get a different name. You know, the, I don't know, the repeated Doctor or the Phantom Doctor or the fake Doctor. You know, who knows? But no, mm-hmm. RDD said, no, this is the 14th Doctor. This is a regeneration. Shooty will be the 15th. 
There's another comment here that I just want to read out for our listeners, Rob. Yeah. The BBC has confirmed that Tennant and Tate will appear in three 60th anniversary special episodes. Mm-hmm. Shooty Gatwa, who had been expected to make his debut on the show at the end of Sunday's episode, will then take control of the TARDIS with his first episode airing over the festive period in 2023. Yeah, it's starting to sound like, I mean, we, I say we, I should just say me, I have been so sure they were going to do a Christmas, Easter, and then the 23rd November. But it sounds like they're going to pump these three specials out closer to the 23rd of November, maybe all in the same month. Yes, I think we can fairly safely say now that the final 14th Doctor episode will be the 60th anniversary episode. Yes. We can probably say that Shooty Gatwa will appear at the end of it as the new Doctor. And then perhaps as a Christmas special at the end of 2023, he'll get his first standalone episode, much like The Christmas Invasion was Tenant's first, and then his new series in 2024. I think that all looks pretty likely now. What we don't know is when specials one and two will air. Will they air a couple of weeks before the 60th and, in, and we'll get three in a row across November 2023? Or will there be an Easter special, a Halloween special, or, or something thereabouts? Yeah, Easter and Halloween's a good call. Of of course, we already have this footage, though, to get back to the trailer of Shooty Gatwa in Tennant's shirt and tie saying, you know, what the hell's going on? I'm wondering, does he pop up in some of the Tennant specials? Like, does Tennant sort of morph into him, like, briefly, and he's like, oh, what the hell's going on? Like, he's jumping to his next incarnation maybe in one of these stories i don't know no there's certainly footage of it yeah is there something unstable going on with the doctor's regenerations perhaps as a consequence of what happened in power of the doctor or or maybe shooty's a watcher Ooh, that'd be interesting so lots of things that could be happening here but we're starting to get a bit of a better shape of how the end of next year is going to look but Mm -hmm. we don't quite know how the start of next year is going to look yet no, no, we don't. But one thing we do know is that Shooty is already out there on the talk circuit in the US. I've, I've seen him on a, a talk show today. I've seen these BBC videos they've put out with him talking about the role. It's like they were just waiting for Jodie to, to get her farewell. And now the, the publicity train has already started. Yeah, absolutely. He's really getting into it. They're really building him up as the Doctor, and that's really, really cool. Uh, and another point that I wanted to make is the large amounts of surprise that audiences had when David Tennant appeared at the end of Power <laughs> of the Doctor, which I think as you commented, Rob, and I know I certainly thought to myself, we forget sometimes that a lot of Doctor Who viewers and even some casual fans don't listen to podcasts, they don't follow Twitter, they don't read every in and out of the news, and they didn't know that David Tennant was going to be the next Doctor and in three specials next year. Well, well, even some who do follow Twitter, you know, that that was what was surprising me. There were people absolutely stunned on Twitter. And I'm like, oh my God, what? who have you been listening to for the, for the last six months? Everyone's been talking about Tennant. You know, we've had pictures of him filming. We've, we've had this, we've had that. And no, these people were genuinely oh my God, you know? And it's like, it just shows that fandom is this tiny little thing, (laughs) really. (laughs) It really, really is, and it's a good reminder. Yeah, it was incredible. A second and perhaps even bigger news item, Rob. Yeah, let's get into that. Disney has bought Doctor Who? Sort of. They've bought the rights to show it. (laughs) They've bought the rights to show it, yes. I mean, that what you just said then brings up my first point. I can't count how many people I've come across in the last day or so who seem to think Disney has bought it. 
are all sorts of misinformation out there. It's 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 incredible. So let's unpack it. Yeah, look, let's unpack it. I'm going to start with my big 30,000 feet view. And that is, I think this is unquestionably a really positive thing for the show on balance, net, however you want to put it. I think that it's going to be a huge input of interest, a huge input of cash, and that's going to be good for the show. I think we also need to acknowledge that there are some disadvantages to it, and we can tease those out. And in particular, look, we are an Australian Doctor Who podcast, and we do need to say, I think, of all of the major markets in which Doctor Who is shown, Australia is probably the one where the uh, weaker aspects of this deal are the biggest. Uh, so yep. we'll tease that out. And I've got a couple of personal anecdotes about that that we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But Rob, your, your your big picture take first. I'm, I'm much the same as you, Dave. And anyone who's been watching me on social in the last day will see that I've, I've been defending that corner a bit with some people having some interesting uh, debates. Mostly good ones too. Uh, people are quite good on Twitter, I think, who follow us on the whole. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the injection of cash is absolutely critical. I think one thing that a lot of people, you know, you talk about people not knowing David Tennant was coming back to the show. People especially don't seem to know what the the budgets and the financial situation of the BBC is. And I've taken the view that without this big cash injection, I think Doctor Who could have ended in the short term future. I really do, because I just don't think the BBC has got the money to make it. Or if it didn't end, it would be a become like a four or six episode every year and a half every two years kind of proposition it wouldn't be an ongoing yearly lots of episodes sort of thing let alone the hooniverse that they're talking about making now um now that it's moving towards disney so i sort of say to people what would you like would you like it to to remain on public broadcasters like the abc and just kill it off in the next few years or do you want it to get a bunch of cash become a whole lot bigger in terms of the show itself and also the amount of people who are seeing it around the world and just become what it deserves to be, which is, you know, a well-watched show and a, and a well-produced show. You know, even going back to the RTD and Moffat days, they'd always say, we don't have enough money. Well, now they do. Yeah, I think that we all acknowledge that the real money in television production now is with the streaming giants. I think that is mm-hmm. just a reality. It's one that people don't want to face, though. They, they don't want to hear it, but it is reality. You're right. Yeah, look, it, it is. I've said a number of times on the show that really 90% of my television viewing now is via streaming. The only mm-hmm. time I turn on to free-to-air is for sport or a big news event where I want to watch the news live. Mm-hmm. That's, otherwise, all the television I watch is via a streaming platform. Even something that's going to be on free-to-air locally... I don't sit down and go, oh, I need to sit down at 8.30 on a Sunday and watch that show. I think, oh, when I'm free to watch it, I'll go and watch it on the iPlayer that that network has. So I've made that transition. I know a lot of people haven't, but I think that that is the way that television is going. I think we need to emphasise that for the main Doctor Who market, which is still the UK, it is still going to be free, in inverted commas, on the BBC. Yeah. Uh, so the UK is going to be okay with that. I think in the US... It's mainly now on subscription services or pay TV or channels or whatever the various different iterations of the US market have. Well, the US has been very problematic and friend of the show, sometimes contributor Mike Sokko was talking to me about this. You know, it's a BBC America thing. 
And not that many people over there upgrade their cable to include BBC America. It's expensive. Yes. And BBC America is full of bloody ads. Power of the Doctor was a two-hour presentation over there because it had ads in it. So not only are our American cousins paying extra to upgrade their cable for it, they're also getting ads and seeing like a two-hour full of ads thing for the specials like that is ridiculous moving to disney they're not going to know themselves they're going to be like oh my god is this how it was really intended you know yeah absolutely so i think america actually does very well out of it the country that's probably as i say being done the most is australia and to give our listeners an idea of just how big a deal this has been i have not once but twice today been on mainstream australian radio stations <laughs> because they, they they've rung me up and gone hey this is a big story can you come on our uh, morning show or our afternoon show and talk about it so yes i yeah. f- first thing this morning i was on 3AW in Melbourne, the biggest breakfast program in Melbourne, uh, talking about Doctor Who. And then I phoned into a show in Perth, uh, of all places. <laughs> they asked me to do their afternoon show over there and had a 10-minute chat with them about Doctor Who on the radio in Perth. So it is it is actually a mainstream topic. So let me say that I totally understand it is natural for Doctor Who fans, particularly fans of our sort of generation who grew up watching the show on the ABC regular repeats the new series it was part of that warm and fuzzy 6 to 7 p.m monday to friday british television as you ease into the evening news and the serious programs of course you're going to have a pang of nostalgia and a you know maybe a lump in the throat as you realize that that era has come to an end i understand that I also understand that, yes, there are now people who do not have Disney Plus subscriptions and are going to have to pay for Doctor Who for the first time. That is, for those people, definitely unfortunate. And for some people, particularly students, it may not be affordable. That is something to acknowledge. There's also now the debate over which platform gets the bigger casual audience because are there people who just turn into the ABC on a Sunday evening and, oh, this Doctor Who program's on, I'll watch it. Does that outnumber the number of people who go onto their Disney Plus app and it says, new series of Doctor Who streaming now, click here, and they go and watch it. I think the ladder's going to be bigger, Mm -hmm. uh, but the numbers aren't going to be borne out. Now, now I have come with some numbers, Rob, but just your thoughts? Well, uh, with regard to your radio appearances, we should try and get some of those and stick them on at the end of the the show, maybe. I definitely have the first one, so we can definitely put that on the end of the show. And if I get the second, that was a bit longer, but we might put some clips up as well. Yeah, let's do that. I think that would be fun. So, yeah, if you want to hear that, stick around for the end of the show. (laughs) But, yeah, look, um, I, I feel weirdly indifferent. I'm quite nostalgic about a lot of things, but I'm weirdly indifferent to the move away from the ABC. And that could be because I really haven't watched Doctor Who go out live on the ABC for a long, long time. Since iView became a thing, I've always just watched Doctor Who on iView. Prior to that, I wasn't watching too much Doctor Who back in the the noughts and the 90s. You know, it's back in the 80s for me. And although that's kind of quaint, like, oh, yeah, I used to watch Doctor Who on the ABC... At this point in my life, I don't actually care where it goes. And I know that's easy to say because I have Disney+. Plus. There was a time, though, when I didn't have Disney+. Plus, and when I wanted to watch The Mandalorian, I just subscribed for a month, watched The Mandalorian, and switched it off again. You know, and, and that'd be my advice to people who are like, oh, I don't want to subscribe to Disney+. Plus. They seem to be thinking of it as, oh, I've got to pay every month for this. Well, well no, Doctor Who's only going to be on once a year if you just want to watch Doctor Who. 
wait until a few apps are up, subscribe for the month, pay your 12 bucks, and uh, just watch it and then unsub. You know, to me, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, look, I confess I did that with Paramount Plus when the new series right. of Star Trek came out. I, I did my free trial and then paid for an extra month to get the end of Strange New Worlds. And then I said, okay, well, there's no more new Star Trek. Is there anything else you want to watch? Oh, that program. And I watched that program and then I unsubscribed and I'll come back. I, I know people that are doing that with Disney at work. I know people that are doing that with Netflix at work. Uh, they're saying, look, yeah. I'll, I'll wait till there's three or four programs on Netflix so that are all completely up and then I'll download Netflix or sorry, I'll subscribe to Netflix for a month. I'll watch the th- two or three programs I want to watch and then they'll go and unsubscribe to that and maybe subscribe to Disney for a couple of months. So pe- people are managing this. But, but look, as I say, if you're if you're a student, maybe it's a little bit harder. I, I do get that. It is something we need to acknowledge. But we also need to acknowledge that Doctor Who fans in the UK don't quite get Doctor Who for free. And I just want to throw a couple of sums in here just to give context to this okay. debate. I, I threw out on Twitter just before we said we'd record, hey, UK listeners, how much actually is the BBC licence fee at the moment? And mm-hmm. um, very Pete Lambert said that it was £159 a year. Paul said that it was £13 a month. And Mark Cockrum said it was 43 pence a day. So depending right. on your perspective, this, this is, of course, a hypothecated tax that you have to pay to get the BBC in, in the UK, mm-hmm. which is a bizarre setup that I think if you if, if you want to see the BBC succeed in the long term, you need to be able to reform of that because in the age of streaming, that's not going to work. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, we it, it, to, to, to talk about our situation in Australia, we fund our public broadcast, yes, but just through the tax system. It's not like a separate fee. Yeah, like it just that. comes out of consolidated revenue. So that's right. just to compare some numbers, in Australian dollars, a BBC licence fee is $284 a year. Mm-hmm. The last time I renewed my Disney Plus subscription for a year, which was November last year, it was $119. Oh, you pay yearly. I pay yearly. Look, it's $120. I know that I'm going to watch the Star Wars series. I'm going to watch the Marvel series. I'm going to watch the Simpsons. I'm going to watch a whole bunch of other stuff on there. So I just think, you know what? I'll just pay $120 and it's done. So yeah. I, I pay yearly. Um, that's fine. I, I, I can and I do. In terms of the cost of the ABC for, for us... If you go by head of population, it's about $52 a year. If you go by taxpayers, it's about $100 a year. Wow, you've really crunched the numbers. I have there. So I'm drawing no conclusions. <laughs> I'm just putting in context there that, yeah, there are some different different numbers there. Look, I think it's going to be a really positive thing for the show. I get why people are angsty, and I also get that some people will be disadvantaged. It's going to blow it up in the US. That's that's the biggest takeaway for me. Yeah, and at a time when you've got Shitty Gatwa, who I think has got a following in the US in which we can tap really, really well, it's the perfect aligning of the stars for the show. Yeah, and if something blows up in the US, folks, that's good things for all of us. It's, it's more merchandise, it's more books, it's more tours by the actors. It's, it's everything. I, I see no real downside to blowing up in the US. Yeah, and look, I'm hoping that the deal means that all the back catalogue of Doctor Who will eventually end up on Disney+, Plus, which means mm. that there'll be a streaming service where we can watch everything from An Unearthly Child through to The Power of the Doctor and beyond, and that would be a really useful, cool thing to have. I appreciate that it is on BritBox, but... Look, I already have enough streaming services. BritBox just has, doesn't have enough for me to have it. Yeah. Well, we sort of had it on Netflix for a while too, at least in this territory. The new series has definitely been on a few uh, apps. I don't think anything in Australia has had the full classic though. Right. Okay. So yeah, look, but new and exciting news and dollars for the show. Yeah. 
yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a net positive. Really is. It is. So look, they're the two big bits of news. Please do let us know if you have a thought. But we'll move into our short topics. Rob, on the run sheet here, it's just got a blank. Do you have a short topic this month? <laughs> I do have a short topic, Dave, and I'll, I'll mention it briefly. Uh, Halloween is coming up, and I'm celebrating Halloween this year, Dave, by reading Doctor Who Tales of Terror. It's just come in in the last few days from Book Depository for me. This is a book of short stories. I think there's about a dozen in there that are sort of horror-related Doctor Who stories. And this book came out in 2018 and completely passed me by. There's been a few books like this over the years. We seem to keep our eye on the merch, but sometimes things just come and, and go. And this is one of them. So I've bought Doctor Who Tales of Terror, and I'm going to read some scary, scary Doctor Who stories for Halloween. There you go. Excellent. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I think so. One short topic from me, Rob, and that is that I have bought and watched The Abominable Snowman on Blu-ray. Ooh, see, I don't have this yet because I didn't buy the UK copy. I actually pre-ordered an Australian copy, but then Mark from 42 to Doomsday ordered too many UK copies and said, do you want one? And so I said, oh, sure, and popped around to his house and picked it up. So Gosh, I... Uh, didn't offer me one, you bastard. You're a long way from his house. <laughs> I'm, I know, I'm just teasing. I'm 15 minutes from his house. You're 15 hours. <laughs> um, I have watched it, and I watched it one episode a night over the course of six nights. Yes. It was interesting. This is probably the story from season five that I am the least familiar with. I yeah. remember having very, very bad audio cassette versions of it from the local club audio library back in the day. And they, they were basically unlistenable. Obviously, I've seen episode two. It was one of the last to come out on CD when they did the missing episode CDs. And I therefore haven't listened to it nearly as much. I was not that impressed with this as a story, I've got to say. I think that the concept and the location and the characters are all very, very good. Mm-hmm. The idea of a yeti, the idea of a monastery in the Himalayas, the monks, Padma Sambhava, are all really, really good concepts. And I think that that really works well. The monastery looks really good. So it, it's a better than usual Doctor Who concept and setting. It doesn't do a lot with that. And there are several episodes, particularly sort of episodes three and four, where not a lot actually happens. There's lots of just quietly walking from room to room, talking in hushed voices about what the Yeti are going to do next. Interspersed maybe once every couple of episodes with the Yeti attack. Um, part six is quite good. Quite Part six has got a bit of an action. It does kind of all end, though, with Jamie just smashing a few things. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't that great a story. I, I enjoyed it. And as I say, the setting really does do a lot of work there to keep it interesting. But um, I don't think it is a very good story and probably could be one of the weaker in season five. I won't say the weakest because the Ice Warriors is there as well. Um, mm. But the animation, middle of the pack, I think this was for me. Okay. Uh, it certainly wasn't cringe, as some of them have been. It did the job fairly well. It gave me a better idea of sort of how things would look and how the monastery looked and how things reacted to each other. The Yeti didn't look great, um, particularly as they didn't even sort of try to do the faces. They just sort of had a blur over the faces, no. which was a shame. Um, the biggest thing, though, is that the likenesses of the characters are very, very dodgy. And that would be okay if part two didn't exist. Because you watch part one on animation, you go, okay, don't quite remember looking like that, but okay, that's fine. Then you watch part two, and then you watch part three and go, he doesn't look like that. 
Right. So it was a little bit weird. So look, it wasn't the best of the animations. Um, I still think Macrotera and Faceless Ones are up there for that. It wasn't the weakest. It was enjoyable. It was good to see the story. I, I really wasn't familiar with it, so I did enjoy it in that sense. Look, middle of the road DVD for me. Yeah, one of those things you, you do want to see, but you probably won't go back to all that often. No, I probably won't. There'll be others in season five, definitely, that I will be more likely to watch. Yeah, very good. That brings us on to our main topic. Yes, here we go. So, Rob, how did this all come about? Well, we were doing our list makers, and yes. one of our listeners, and I'm very sorry I've forgotten to save the tweet. I was on a holiday at the time we had this discussion, thought I'd saved mm-hmm. it, and it turns out I haven't. So if it was you, please let us know, and we will thank you properly. But one of our listeners said, why don't you do top five performances by Doctor Who actors in other shows? And I said, look, I'd love to do that, but... Unfortunately, I did exactly that topic as a guest on 42 to Doomsday four or five years ago. So I would feel a bit weird doing it. And then I thought, hmm. but there's still a good conversation to have there. Why, oh, yeah. why don't we make it a main topic and do all 13? Yes. And I suggested it to you and you didn't take any persuading at all. So nope. <laughs> as I said, we're not saying best. We're not saying favorite. We're not saying most interesting. It could be any of those or something else, but mm, we're highlighting mm. each a performance by the actors who played the doctor in something else. You might agree with us. You might disagree with us. Or hopefully perhaps you'll think that sounds really interesting and go out and have a watch and see some of these actors we all love in other things. Now, yeah. as we go through, I thought... It's a little bit predictable to go from Hartnell to Whitaker in order again. So I have put all of the Doctors into a DVD cover. And we're going to draw them out randomly just to spice things up a bit. I like it. So, Rob, do you want to kick us off with the first Doctor? Or the first actor, I should say. (laughs) You threw me there. (laughs) And appropriately enough, it is Peter Davison. Oh, Davo. Okay. For Davo, I have picked the TV series A Very Peculiar Practice, with the runner-up being At Home with the Braithwaites. I don't have a runner-up for each category, by the way. Uh, But A Very Peculiar Practice, I like this series from 1986 very much, as it's quirky, it's very black humour. It has David Troughton and Graham Crowden in it. Oh, cool. Basically, Davo is a doctor at a medical centre at a university, and everyone there is a bit weird. Davo is basically the straight man to all of this, just absolutely bewildered at what's <laughs> going on around him. And it's really entertaining. In At Home with the Braithwaites, meanwhile, he's much older. This is a series from 2000. Uh, so what, he would have been in his 50s, early 50s around then, I think, where he's very much a put-upon dad in a family that wins the lottery but have they won the lottery legally? Uh, It's very funny and also very weird at times too. So two very quirky TV series that Davo's been in, Very Peculiar Practice and At Home with the Braithwaites. Interesting. I've gone something different with Davo, and Mm -hmm. that is a 1993 telly movie called Harnessing Peacocks. Oh, I think I've heard of this. Definitely not seen it. This was a star vehicle for an actress by the name of Serena Scott Thomas, mm-hmm. who was just breaking out at the time. It's based on a Mary Wesley novel, and it's one of those very sort of twee, larger-than-life English characters that she has in those novels. It's very sort of rom commy but done very dry and very sort of 
not seriously, but that sort of British pathos is sort of in there. Yeah. And and once again, actually, Davison plays the straight character. You've got a woman who basically decides that her biggest skill is making love. And right. so therefore she decides that she's going to have her peacocks, who are people she picks who are allowed to pay her to make love with them. And that's how she earns her money. And she does very well. Her son goes to a private boarding school and all of that sort of thing. And so there's all these bizarre peacocks that she has that are running around and they all decide they're in love with her and want it to be be serious. And right. in amongst all of this craziness is Peter Davison, who... <laughs> I like is, it already. He's 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 the one who she met when she was a young teenager in Italy, had a moment, a night of passion, never found again, and mm. then slowly they start to find each other. Right. And it's really, really kooky. It's really, really interesting. And his performance there is just one that carries it. This would be a kind of a farce and kind of ridiculous and probably not really watchable if you didn't have this one bit of straightness. Yeah. Just, just, just holding the whole narrative together, and he does it really, really well. Oh, that's excellent, excellent. I, I can see a pattern in the roles Davo plays. Maybe I, I, I think so. Oh, look, I was tempted to say the dish of the day, but uh, <laughs> I didn't think there was enough to say, say there. Mm. Uh, I'll get us started with our next one, which is David Tennant. His Tennant, his son-in-law. Okay. Now, my go-to for David Tennant used to be an episode of The Bill called Deadline, which was in 1995, one of his first TV roles, and he's excellent in that. But I've upgraded that, I've updated that to his performance as Des Nilsson in Des, which was a three-part miniseries released by the BBC in 2020, where he plays the serial killer, as I said, Des Nilsson. And it is an extraordinary performance. It is a reminder of just how fantastically good an actor David Tennant is. Mm-hmm. He plays a serial killer who lurches between enjoying his notoriety and feeling not guilt for what he's done, but maybe understanding what he's done. It's all sort of done through the eyes of the police who discover the crime and are then interviewing him. And, and more than anything, just trying to find out why this guy did this stuff. Right. And... Through it all, Tennant is just impenetrable, mm-hmm. and it's unscrupulous, and it's really, really good. It's it's a good reminder of just how good David Tennant is, and I, I'm a big fan. And uh, yeah, look, it, it is a little bit gruesome. I warn you of that. But if you are a David Tennant fan and you haven't seen it, uh, do check that out. But also, the Bill episode deadline is on YouTube. Uh, if you want to see a young David Tennant again playing a uh, a uh, very crazy character, check that out as well. Awesome. Awesome. And he also plays quite a, a weird, crazy guy in an episode of Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, the, the remake of that, which had uh, Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer as the leads. Um, well, well, he got his big breakout role playing a guy in Taking Over the Asylum. Right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I remember that's the first time I saw him in stuff. He was only about 18 or 19 when I did that, I think. Yeah, so he's good at it. He's good at it. <laughs> What's your tenant pick, Rob? Well, I was going to say, tenants just bloody everywhere, you know, so you're, you're spoiled for choice, you know. Do I say Casanova, which pretty much won him Doctor Who? Do I say Broadchurch, where I think he was really good? What about Jessica Jones, you know, where he played a bad guy who was just astonishing, you know, across a whole series? But no, I'm going to go with Good Omens, as I think it's just a super Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett piece, and I think 
Tennant's character Crowley has some really nice scenes bouncing wonderfully off Michael Sheen, you know, and then when COVID came along, they Sheen and Tennant did that series together where they would talk across Skype or Zoom or whatever it was. You know, they sort of have this bromance going on these days. And it all sort of kicked off here, I think. It's just so, so fun to watch Michael Sheen being the, the good angel and, and David Tennant being the bad angel. And they're meant to hate each other and fight each other, but they get along and have lunch and things together. It's, it's just such a great show. And I'm so pleased there's a new series of it coming up soon. Yes, I've been meaning to watch that and haven't, so it's a good reminder to me that I do need to. But yeah, look, a very strong actor. And, and look, the 14th Doctor. Yes, that's it. John Pertwee. Pertwee, the Pert. Gosh, I wonder if we'll have a snap here. We haven't talked about snaps, have we? we I think we'll have snaps. It's possible. For Pertwee, I'm going with Wurzel Gummidge. And I can't go past this because, like Doctor Who, it's so very much a part of my childhood. In fact, I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast before that I was probably watching Wurzel Gummidge before I was seriously watching Doctor Who. And as a result, I was watching Pertwee as Gummidge before he was the Doctor, which is just extraordinary for me to think about now, because Wurzel Gummidge isn't something I've watched for a long time. For the uninitiated, Wurzel Gummidge is a scarecrow who runs around the countryside having, you know, crazy adventures. And there's been a remake of it, actually, in recent years with Mackenzie Crook. Yes. Which is very good, too. It's different to the Pertwee show, but it's still very, very good. And I just think this lovely countryside and Pertwee being Pertwee and putting on his funny voices and all the different heads he would wear as Wurzel because he could change his heads if you've not seen it you know have different heads for different things yes, he was my, going my, to do my thinking head or my thinking head that's it yeah ah oh, just just wonderful memories of Wurzel Gummidge for Pertwee yeah look I have as well uh, I also just want to give a shout out to his radio work on the Navy Lark which is really really good mm-hmm. but I could not go beyond his guest appearance in the goodies episode of Wacky Whales as, ah! as the Reverend Quellen, 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 Quellen okay. from 1975. Look, this is one of those performances where a guest actor walks into a show and just takes it over. And mm. when you're performing against Graham Garden, Tim Brooke Taylor and Bill Oddie, and you're able to just blow them off the screen for status and comedy uh, it just shows how great an actor you are. And yeah. that turn from John Pertwee is just hilarious. The vocal comedy, the physical comedy, the dramatic acting in there. It's just absolutely perfect. You can see why this man was known for his comic chops. You can see why he was a vaudeville performer. And he used to have mm. his cabaret shows where he would go out there and do some songs and sort of tell some jokes and tell anecdotes and just i wish that we could have seen more of that on video i really really do but i just think that episode of the goodies with john pertwee is just brilliant and shows just how good he was yeah it's it's wild how so much stuff from even the 70s but particularly the 80s has shown up on video and yet pertwee's cabaret show no isn't that weird it, it is i just i guess there just probably weren't nearly as many home videos at the time so it, it is a shame hmm I'll keep us going with our next one, which is Christopher Eccleston. Eccleston, okay. Again, lots of really good stuff that we could mention here. 
I have gone, though, for one of his earlier performances. It's the first thing I ever saw him in, and that is the movie Shallow Grave from 1994, mm-hmm. which he co-stars in with a young actor by the name of Ewan McGregor, who would break out uh, a couple of years after that as well. In this movie, basically, the three of them accidentally commit a murder and then have to get rid of the body and then pretend that nothing's happened. And it's all about how these three characters slowly come to terms and try to deal with this. And Christopher Eccleston is the one who can't and goes slowly crazy. And mm. uh, and uh, look, it's just an incredible performance. I remember all a bunch of... A bunch of us, all actually Doctor Who fans, completely randomly. But we used to catch up and go around to people's houses and sometimes watch movies. And someone said, you've got to watch this movie. I'm putting on Shallow Grave. And all of us just being utterly, utterly transfixed by Christopher Eccleston's performance. And a few years later, hey, you remember that that guy who played the crazy guy in Shallow Grave? He's the new Doctor. Uh, (laughs) It's a really good movie. Ewan McGregor's really good in it as well. Uh, I think it's worth checking out. Awesome. Awesome. For Eccleston, I thought he's got such a checkered history with roles. Like, do I go for Existence from the late 90s, which is a David Cronenberg horror sci-fi, or or his G.I. Joe film, or his Thor movie? And I I flick through so many things, I'm like, oh, no, 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 I can't e- do any of e- these. Even he wouldn't pick his Thor movie. <laughs> I know, I know. So I'm thinking, oh, I can't pick that, I can't pick that, I can't pick that. But I've gone with Heroes, because Heroes was a TV series I really loved. I I recall it got messed around like many series did by that big writer's strike. And when it came back, it was never quite the same. But the first series of Heroes in particular was real water cooler stuff. And it really grabbed my imagination. And I, I really liked it. And Eccleston's role in it as a guy who could turn invisible, I think, is worth a rewatch today. As is all of Heroes, if not just the first season. You know, he's in not many eps. I think it might be like half a dozen or something. But it's great. It's post-Doctor Who. And there were some funny stories at the time that the, the production team were always trying to get him to do Doctor Who-y type things. Like, oh, do you want to wear a scarf in this episode? He'd be like, no, I'm not having that. <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing. I think he even writes about it in his autobiography. It's, it's quite interesting. But yeah, I'd say heroes for Eccleston. Yeah, look, fair enough. And when we put this out on Twitter, Rob from 42 to Doomsday very correctly did nominate his role in Cracker, uh, which is particularly appropriate and poignant given that we lost Robbie Coltrane this month as well. Very sad, yeah. Rob, I'll get you to continue with the new series and the very latest ex-actor to play the Doctor, or actress in fact, Jodie Whittaker. Jodie Whittaker. I'm going to go here, Dave, with Attack the Block. Now, this might seem an odd choice because with Whitaker we have something like Broadchurch, which for its first series at least was genuine must-see TV. And although her character wasn't an easy character to, to fall in love with, I don't know if that's the right term, but, you know, she was a sad, angry, grieving mother. You know, I think her portrayal was excellent. But in Attack the Block, meanwhile, she's part of an ensemble and it's such a weird, horrific comedy about an alien invasion and and she's really tough and a bit spiky in it john boyega uh finn from the star wars movies uh is in it i actually whenever i see it i wish her doctor was more like how she acts in this film you know and it just goes to show that people who criticize her performance like oh she can't act 
Well, yes, she can. Go and watch Broadchurch. Watch Attack the Block. Watch any number of things she's been in. You might not like how she played the Doctor, but she can do other things. And and I do actually wish she had played the Doctor maybe more like her Attack the Block character. Fair enough. My pick for Jodie Whittaker is a 2011 episode from Series 1 of Black Mirror. And I was a bit staggered to realise that that Black Mirror's first season is 11 years ago. That that kind of blew me away. Uh, the episode's called The Entire History of You. And yep. the, the, the premise or the Black Mirror conceit of this episode is that we're in a future now where a piece of tech just inserted behind your ear can record all of your memories and you can play them back either to yourself or on a screen for other people to watch. Mm. And Jodie Whittaker and her husband go to a dinner party and from that, the husband discovers that she's cheated on him in the past. Mm. And... They're able to use all of his memories of the night and her memories of the event to put it all together and react. So this role relies on a very subtle and very detailed performance by Jody because it hinges on you watching a scene and maybe getting some takeaways from it. But then when it's played again, you take away a different twist on it or you see a particular reaction or a particular mm. laugh or a particular look that starts to give away what's been going on. And so it's a really, really good performance. And as they get further into this and the husband slowly breaks down at this discovery about his wife, she has to react to all that. So it's a really strong performance from her. And again, one of her earlier ones, 11 years ago. Yeah, I I would say too, a very good script, but she nails it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, So I will keep going. Okay, what have we got? We have Tom. Tom. I've got to say, this was one of the harder ones mm-hmm. for me to pick because Tom, particularly post-Doctor Who, was really just played Tom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was quite tempted to go with his role as Captain Rubbing Blackadder, but I did settle on a role prior to Doctor Who, and that is his very famous role as Rasputin, appropriate given last week, his role mm-hmm. as Rasputin in Nicholas and Alexander from 1971. This is one of the roles that really brought him to attention. It's one of the roles that really got him noticed. And it is an interesting performance because you can see Tom there. You can see all the Tom weirdness and the Tom larger-than-lifeness there. But it's not Tom after Doctor Who. It's Tom before that. It's Tom mm. still finding his way as an actor. It's Tom still developing that character. And and there's a really interesting performance that we're not quite used to from him that's, that's really, really good. So Nicholas and Alexander as Rasputin for Tom. Very nice. I've gone for a bit of a different vibe here. I've gone for The Book Tower. I'm not familiar with that. Oh, okay, because this is Tom, obviously, but it's Tom being a presenter. I had to look up how many episodes of Book Tower he did, and it was 22. And, of course, there were other presenters of Book Tower that followed on from Tom. It was this really amazing show, Dave, which I remember being on the ABC as a kid, that would be presented by someone and they would read from a book and you would see illustrations from the book. And the idea was to get you into reading books, you know, it was it was such a British show, you know, but one of these things I remember as a young kid, even though all the presenters are now muddled in my head. But yeah, Tom did 22 episodes of this concurrent with Doctor Who towards the end of his run. So it's like 
a TV show opening and Tom as the Doctor, although he's not in costume, reading books to you, if that makes sense. No, it does, it does. I, I didn't know he did that, but that, that does sound really cool. Yeah, there should be episodes of Tom doing Book Tower on, I don't know, if not YouTube, then one of the other Daily Motion or something like that. I'm sure there are some out there. So look them up, folks. You might, you might quite enjoy it. So neither of us picked The Lives and Loves of a She-Devil then? That was notorious in our fan group because didn't he show his bum in it? He was is he having sex? And you see his the, bum. The, the 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 Tom sex scene particularly has his vocals, um, that's right, <laughs> which have to be heard to be believed. It is a it is a memorable performance, but not one I could recommend except <laughs> except as um. But yeah, anyway, we'll keep going. I'm glad you mentioned that though, because I do remember that being sort of notorious in our club back in the day. Yeah, yeah. It, it it was in ours as well. Back to the start, Rob. Oh, what did yep. you pick for William Hartnell? William Hartnell. Look, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I haven't seen Hartnell in a lot of things. I have seen Brighton Rock. I have seen This Sporting Life. These are two films that he's often mentioned in. They're very good films. I've yes. seen them. Yep. But I thought it might be fun to pick the first Carry On film, which is Carry On Sergeant, because Hartnell is playing the aforementioned Sergeant. And it's the kind of role he was typecast in in so many films, always a bit of a hard man, a, a sergeant-type character, unlike what he did in Doctor Who on the whole, where he's quite, you know, light and twinkly. But it's a comedy, of course, so it's not like those other roles either, <laughs> because it's, it's a carry-on film, although it is the first carry-on film, so it's not quite like what they evolve into over however many they made, like 20-something. I don't know how many they made, Dave. But I would just like to pull out, yeah, the first carry-on film has William Hartnell in it as the the sergeant of the title of the film. That's a really good pick. And look, you did pick a couple of really good movies as well that I think a couple of people did mention as well on Twitter when we raised this up. I have gone for a 1945 Hartnell movie, Oh God! Yeah, I was I was tossing up between that and the 1946 Hartnell movie, Appointment with Crime, but I picked a 1945 Hartnell movie, Murder in Reverse, which is one of his first big starring roles. Mm-hmm. This is where he plays a man who is charged with and convicted for a murder, not only that he didn't commit, but that we late, later discover didn't even happen. Oh wow! And the movie goes on. I'm, 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 you know, not that worried about spoiling a movie that's how many years old? <laughs> Seventy something. Yeah. <laughs> um, it goes on, and after he is released from prison, he first goes about trying to redeem himself and, and get himself acquitted. But as it takes a twist, you realise that if you've already done a jail sentence for killing somebody and they're still alive, mm-hmm. if you kill them, oh. Yes. I'll leave it there. I like it. It's a really, really good movie, and it's just a really strong performance for him as a much younger man, as a much younger man. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. But, look, we've mentioned a number of really good Hartnell movies in there. Why don't they remake films like that? They do remakes of films that don't need to be remade, whereas something like that from so long ago, that could do with a remake. Yeah, a lot of those films that they used to churn out back in those days, they sort of 90 to 100-minute thrillers, hardball detective stuff they're really really good they're incredibly watchable yeah absolutely we're jumping almost to the other end with peter capaldi pcap uh a number of things here that i did sort of toss around in my head um the personal history of david copperfield from a few years ago was really good i liked him in that but i can't go past 
his performance as Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it. And I'm particularly <laughs> going to highlight the final episode of The Thick of It. Now, the final season of The Thick of It is actually my favourite of, of all of them. That's where the Labour Party that Tucker is the spin doctor of has been booted into opposition and the uh, Conservative Lib Dem coalition is now in government. So we get a lot of fun with that. But we now see Tucker play behind the scenes of the opposition and it's mm. really really good but it then gets darker and it starts to explore some of the stuff that was happening in the uk at that time um, in particular government policy leads to a high profile suicide of an individual and this leads mm. to an inquiry into spin doctoring from all the parties and, and how that all works and in the end tucker has to resign and yeah. the way that capaldi plays it having having spent three seasons, you know, three and three quarter seasons as this untouchable, powerful force of nature, suddenly watching reality catch up with him mm. and watching his whole world not just fall apart, but fall apart in a really significant way. It's just a masterful performance. And I think that, look, he's great in all of the thick of it, but that, that last episode or two, he is incredible. Well, snap. <laughs> there had to be at least one. How can I not choose this? Sure, he's been in some good movies. His turn in Torchwood is amazing. But come on, Malcolm Tucker is one of the great characters. And I can see in hindsight why people wanted that to sort of bleed over into the Doctor. Even I did before we actually saw what he was doing with the Doctor. But when I actually reflected back on that first series, I thought, oh, no, 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 that was a mistake. Malcolm Tucker is Malcolm Tucker. The Doctor is the Doctor and never the twain should meet. But in his own series, where he's being Malcolm Tucker and it's all designed around that, he's just great as Malcolm Tucker. As I say, one of the great characters. I love it. Full stop. Yeah, it is very, very good. Rob, we have got the final new series Doctor, of course, Matt Smith. Smithy, I'm going to go with The Crown here, Dave, for two reasons. One is I think Smith does an excellent Prince Philip across the 20 episodes he's in. And I had to check that. I didn't think it was as many as that, but it is actually 20 episodes. It is, yeah. And the other is that I think that is the best era of The Crown, those first 20 episodes, far enough away, back in time, and taking in subjects that are just really enjoyable to watch. And I think as that series has progressed, it's become more sensationalist. It seems to have a bit of an agenda going on. I don't blame Judy Dench at all for writing that letter recently. No, I, I agree with everything Judy Dench said. Early on, though, great. And a big part of that greatness was Smithy as Prince Philip. I think he was really fabulous in it i really do yeah uh, like a lot of people i went back and watched the first series of the crown over the last month because of some fairly obvious events that have occurred and and yeah he is extraordinary in that uh, but i have picked one of his earlier roles and that is his role in the 2007 series party animals i thought you might go there look you know rob that i'm a big fan of this this is where I was one of the few people who'd actually seen Matt Smith before he'd been cast as the Doctor. Yes. And I remember going, everyone's going, who is this guy? Is he able to play the Doctor? I said, no, 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 check him out in Party Animals. I know exactly why he's been cast to play the Doctor. In this role, he plays the son of a deceased uh, former Labour MP who is now a staffer, now a researcher for a Labour shadow cabinet minister. 
And it's one of those series where he has to pull against his idealism and his his commitment to the labor cause and his commitment to what his father fought for and just the reality of 21st century British politics, mm. the, the, the grubbiness of it on occasions, the way that a good idea can be blown up by a poor piece of presentation. Uh, he has to deal with all of that. Um, his brother is a very successful private spin doctor, um, you know, consultant and, mm-hmm. His brother's sort of, you know, the the older, flashier, gets all the girls sort of guy with a bit of money and all the rest of it. And Smith, the, 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 the younger, you know, lives with his brother on the couch, but he believes in something, goddammit. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and all, all the dynamics come out of that. It's a really, really good series. I, I say as somebody who works in politics, it is the closest any TV series has ever come to properly capturing what politics really is like. Mm-hmm. It's the show that made me go, that guy should play the Doctor. Wow. Big call. Patrick Troughton. Troughton. I will note here that one of our Twitter followers, Professor Stephen Hawkwind, did suggest his role as a pervy old tramp in Morse, um, <laughs> which was uh, definitely a good performance. And his last one, I believe. I have picked his performance as the Duke of Norfolk in The Six Wives of Henry VIII, mm-hmm. which was a big 1970 BBC miniseries, and it goes through the Six episodes, one for each wife, with Henry VIII played by Keith Michelle. Uh, it's one of those series that I think it has its ups and downs. The problem is they've decided that each wife gets 90 minutes, which means in the case of Catherine of Aragon, you've got about 20 years truncated into 90 minutes. In the case of Anne of Cleves, you've got two conversations. <laughs> desperately right. expanded out to 90 minutes. Um, but through five of the six episodes, you have Troughton playing the Duke of Norfolk, who is this arch manipulator. He is this person always looking to get himself and his family closer to power. In the end, he finally manipulates his niece, Catherine Howard, into becoming the new queen and Henry's fifth wife. And that, that ends horribly for all concerned. But it's just this amazing performance where he has to be serious and he has to be charming and he has to be ruthless and it would have been one of the first things he did after Doctor Who and you can see him using this to break type very very quickly interesting I've not seen that myself oh okay it's uh look I don't think it's as good as Elizabeth R which was the sequel but it's Mm -hmm. it's definitely worth a look okay for Troughton, I've gone with a with a hobo type uh, character, but not the one that was suggested. I've gone with all creatures great and small. Oh yes, and as we know, Troughton was very much a character actor, and this is a great example of him being a character actor to a T. He's playing Roddy, the hobo, in the episode "Hair of the Dog." So. This is around 1980, I think. So it's a few years before he and Davo will be together in The Five Doctors. But they share some scenes in this story, which I always think is quite cool to watch. As a Doctor Who fan, you, you know, you're watching it and you're thinking, there's the second Doctor and the fifth Doctor, but oh, it hasn't happened in The Five Doctors. That geeky sort of stuff you know, that <laughs> yep. you do. So it has some nice memories for me in that respect as well, but it's also a really great episode of early All Creatures Great and Small, which is the best All Creatures Great and Small. So I've, I've gone with that. Yeah, that is a good performance. And look, I do agree. Those first couple of seasons of All Creatures, they are they are superb. They're really, really good. Yeah. Keep us going, please, Rob. Yes, with who? Colin Baker. Colin Baker. Colin is problematic 
insofar as before Doctor Who, I only really know his Blake Seven role. I mean, we talk about things like the brothers, but I've never seen the brothers. And after Doctor Who, he hasn't done a lot of film. And TV has been, you know, an episode of this and an episode of that. And I think he's probably done more theatre than anything else, which, you know, being down here, I haven't been privy to. So I'll acknowledge that he may have been in some brilliant theatre and may have done some great one-off episodes in other shows, but they're shows I don't watch. So I got a bit stuck. So I've actually plumped for the five-ish Doctors. as something really fun and really heartfelt and really nice of him to to take up the spirit of and and play himself in and just have a bit of fun around the time of the 50th anniversary so maybe not a, a super serious pick here but one i think is very enjoyable to watch and i appreciate him doing it it is wonderful to see colin in that just having fun isn't it yeah love it I was tossing up between a couple of picks for Colin, both stuff before he was cast as the Doctor. I almost picked his role in the Fall of Eagles miniseries from 1974, where a very young Colin Baker plays the Crown Prince Wilhelm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's in those last couple of episodes where the German Empire is falling apart and eventually his dad has to abdicate. But he wasn't in that enough for me to really justify it so look i did go with the obvious pick i did pick him as babe and the butcher in blake seven because look that is just a wonderful performance he's one of the few actors probably probably one of two along with um savadant one of the two actors who can really out darrow paul darrow yeah and and particularly that scene where he's there with michael keating's villa and he just has that little monologue and he's sort of doing all the my mother used to say babe should say she called me babe Babe, she'd say, treat every hour as though it's your last. I'll be yep. back in an hour, Villa. <laughs> it's a wonderful performance. It's a brilliant, entertaining performance. And I just think, look, if you haven't seen him, you've got to. Yeah, agree. Uh, I will keep going. And ooh, looks like we're going to be doing the last couple in order because the next we have is Sylvester McCoy. Mm-hmm. And I have picked Sylvester McCoy in the Air Zone Solution. Okay. Which was a 1993 semi-professional, semi-fan-made production. It was made by Bill Baggs Video, mm-hmm. uh, written by Nick Briggs, and despite that, it's still not bad. Uh, but but <laughs> Sylvester McCoy is in there, and, and I should say, it, it's, it stars John Pertwee, Sylvester McCoy, Peter Davison, and Colin Baker. Right. Uh, and Sylvester McCoy plays a activist who is working with a journalist played by Peter Davison to try and expose a company that's doing some quite nefarious environmental things. And there's a couple of reasons why I picked this. First of all, seeing him interact with Peter Davison is really, really interesting because as we highlighted right at the start of our list, Davo often plays those quite straight roles that hold everything together. Mm. Whereas McCoy is known as, you know, the guy who put his ferret down his pants. Yeah. And, and to see those two characters, those two actors interact is actually really, really interesting and a really good dynamic. But it's also good to see McCoy playing a role very different to what we're used to as that sort of activist. And he can be quirky with a little bit of gravitas, but he's not he's not playing the Seventh Doctor, Dark Doctor. It's a different thing again. And, and I just think it's a really nice example of what McCoy actually can do. Brilliant. Good call there. For McCoy, I've gone with Sense8. Now, I went with this because, you know, good old Sylve hasn't been in a lot of notable things, so it might be easy to, to have picked this or you know, The Hobbit or something like that. But honestly... 
My wife and I actually devoured Sense8 when it was on TV. It was basically JMS, who's a big favourite of us. Yes. And the Wachowskis, who wrote this series, which is about people who are mentally connected because they were born at the same time around the world. And they can sort of communicate mentally with each other, even when they're in their different countries of, of origin. Uh, so it's very cool. And it zips all around the world because you might have the guy who was born at this time in Germany communicating with someone doing something over in the US or a guy who's running around in a, in a little bus in Africa. And, and they're all part of this little cell and they're all connected through their birth dates. It's, it's a really interesting. And Sylvester comes in in the second series uh, as a very mysterious sort of character, kind of the stuff he does well. I think Sense8 is a great underrated series. I hardly ever hear anyone talk about it. And I think, come on, this was a really good series. JMS and the Wachowskis, you know, and a big budget. Oh, why don't more people talk about Sense8, Dave? I don't know. Yeah, it's something that I have often said I need to watch. And and, and once again, we, you know, we, we talked about the listeners maybe going and watching some of this stuff. I need to go and watch a couple of these pics you've reminded me to see. So that's a really right. good call. Our final one, Rob, I'll get you to keep going with Paul McGann. Paul McGann. I've gone with lesbian vampire killers, Dave. (laughs) That's a joke. Uh, Actually, it's not a joke. The film is real. I promoted it when I was at Paramount. Yes, And and McGann is in it. Yes, he is. It's just not not my pick. That's reassuring. (laughs) I I just thought I'd say it to see if the listeners were still awake out there. Look, there's a lot of good McGann stuff. Do I go for something like The Hanging Gale? which was partly shot in Ramelton in Donegal, which is where my family are from. Well, part of my family, at least. Do I say with nail and eye, because that's what everyone's expecting me to say. But honestly, even though he's just a supporting character, I'm going to say the Hornblower series, because I just bloody love those TV movies, Dave. And I love McGann as Mr. Bush in Hornblower. He is really, really good in that. And I've got to admit, when I met Paul McGann and was getting my copy of Time Frame signed, the thing that I said to him was, look, I just want to say I really loved you in uh, Hornblown. I'd love you to do some more. And, and, he, and he leant over and he said conspiratorial to me, look, I'd love to do some more, but it's Ian Griffin. Every time somebody asks him publicly, do you want to do more? He says, yes, but the bastard won't do it. <laughs> so I thought that was really interesting. Look, I had Hornblower's one on my list. I've got to say, McGann was probably the hardest one of all of them to pick. Uh, and mm-hmm. we, got, we got lots of feedback on this one again on Twitter. Mark Cockrum uh, suggested the Monocle Mutineer. That's uh, a popular one, yeah. Rob Kelly was w- with you and said Hornblower. And Professor Stephen Hawkwind said, give us a break, which was a very cool series he did with Robert Lindsay where he was a pool shark. And it wasn't a bad series, but they quickly ran out of uh, really clever ways to have the plot hinge on a game of pool in the end. Um, so, so no one said lesbian vampire killers? No one said lesbian vampire killers. Oh, okay. I'm going with the one you mentioned at the start, Rob, and that is The Hanging Gale, which mm-hmm. was a four-part miniseries in 1995, starring Joe McGann, Mark McGann, Stephen McGann, and Paul McGann yeah. as brothers. So that was kind of one of the big publicity things around it at the time. It was a British-Irish co-production mm-hmm. with... Michael Kitchen as the antagonist, because I think in 1995 there was a law that said everything the BBC made that year had to have Michael Kitchen in it, (laughs) Uh, and he was very, very good. But it it is set in 1846 in in Ireland. It's just at the start of the blight. It's just at the time when 
things were really going bad for Ireland. And, and one thing that I think brings that home is the population of Ireland in 2022 is still lower than the population of Ireland in 1840 before the blight hit. Yeah, that's that's, that's how yeah that's how much it, it hasn't still recovered as a country. But Paul McGann is in this. He's got a really different role to some of the other brothers, and it's a really interesting role because he rubs up against his brothers in, in in quite a dramatic way. But it's just a really good piece of of television from that period where the BBC really was just making some amazing historical dramas. Um, Rhodes was another one that came out of this period as well. It was really good. And mm-hmm. look, of all the Doctors we've listed, there are perhaps better actors than Paul McGann, but in terms of bodies of work on television, he's perhaps got the best. Oh, I think so. I think so. And all his voiceover work as well. And all his voiceover work. There's so much good stuff we had there that we could have picked for Paul McGann. So, yeah, just a really talented actor, and we were lucky to have him for the 90 minutes we did. And look, I know it's probably a fantasy, but... If Disney money can give us anything, I'm with the people. Give us the Paul McGann spin-off. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, we should just mention that, look, we didn't pick anything for Shudy Gatwa because he is brand new as the Doctor. The only thing I've seen him in is Sex Education. And I think most people know that he's in that and he's awesome in that. And Rob, I don't think you've even seen that. No, I've not seen Sex Education. No, so look, I, th- I think that we just weren't able to say that, but hopefully we'll see a lot more of Shitty Gatwa. And I will just put a shout-out to John Hurt, of course, for those who want us to include the War Doctor. It would obviously have to be Caligula in I, Claudius, but again, what an amazing body of work. Yeah, absolutely. So there are our picks for Doctor actors in other TV and movie. Please let us know which ones you love or which ones you think we've missed. Yeah, or which ones you're going to go out and watch. Yeah, and if you do, let us know what you think. That there would be it would it would make me so pleased if if people heard this podcast and went out and saw some of these really good bits of television. Sensei, sensei, sensei. <laughs> but on that note, we have got some listener feedback and some listener emails. Rob, you're going to kick us off. We do. This first one is from John Thompson. He says, "Hi lads, some of my favourites." i.e. I own these and have watched them a few times. A. William Hartnell in Brighton Rock. A great supporting performance, one of his tough guy roles. Hard to believe it's him. B. Pat Troughton in the Survivors episode Parasites. Looking a bit older, but still steals every scene he's in. A great post-virus drama. Hope one of you have seen this. I I have seen all of Survivors, yes. There you go. C. John Pertwee. I can say, rather ashamed, I saw in the movies in New Zealand Carry On Columbus only because John was in it. Terrible movie. It was his last full role, be it for three minutes. I I think it is ironic that one Doctor, William Hartner, was in perhaps the best Carry On movie and John Pertwee was in perhaps the worst. There you go. And and at either sort of ends of the Carry On uh, thing. So true. Yeah. D, Tom Baker, The Black Adder episode, Potato as Captain Redbeard Rum. Love this with Tom in it. He really goes for it. (gasps) You have a woman's hand, my lord. (laughs) That will do. As other than Tristan, I haven't seen any of the other classic Doctors in anything else of note, aside from the Air Zone solution. (laughs) That was one of your picks. It was. Uh, Keep up the good work. P.S. Dave, I went to the Astor showing of the two Dalek movies, hoping to introduce myself. 
but you weren't wearing an I co-host the Doctor Who show t-shirt, so I didn't know who you were. Still, it was a fun afternoon. John Thompson. No, fair enough. It's a shame that you didn't recognise me because it would have been great to say hi, but thank you for the email, John. Uh, We have a piece of feedback on the power of the Doctor from Peter Dedman. Yes. Hey guys, having just watched Power of the Doctor, I had a few thoughts mostly in line with you guys. I think this episode definitely showed all the hallmarks of the Chibnall era. Random locations and time for no apparent reason, over-explanation and telling rather than showing, as well as plots which are ultimately incomprehensible under full study. Mm-hmm. On the plus side, these didn't annoy me like many of the episodes, and all of Flux did. For that, the added runtime and extra companions helped keep things fresh. I also liked the Master a lot in this story, even if there was no reason for him to dress up and play Rasputin. Something we said on the app. Uh, that's true. On the downside, the plot was pretty disjointed, as always, and either Daleks or Cybermen should have been dropped as they ultimately had too little time. Mm. I have so many questions about this episode, and era in general, which will never be answered, so I'll just move on. Ultimately, I came down more with Dave in this case, and would give it a solid 8 out of 10. Good, but not amazing. Also, I've heard that the ABC has lost the broadcast rights for Doctor Who. Starting next year, it's going to Disney. Hopefully, Disney Plus will actually have more than two random seasons available to watch online. Cheers, Peter. Yeah, look, I think Disney has paid through the nose and they're going to show anything and everything that they can. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. One last email, Rob. One last email from Martin Oates. He says, Dear Rob and Dave, Firstly, thanks as ever for the quality and quantity of your output. As a now ex-podcaster, six years talking about beer, who co-hosted around 200 shows, I know how much time goes into this hobby. (laughs) Now onto the subject at hand. I have now watched The Power of the Doctor twice, once when I listened to your hot take, and subsequently to see if my thoughts and views had changed. They hadn't. It's Jode's best outing and adventure, a great way to say goodbye to number 13. Dan's departure was spot on, given his nature and that of the Doctor. It was done with grace and calm understatement. Old school, almost. I found it very touching, to be honest. Comparisons to Marvel are fair, and as a massive fan of the MCU, I see nothing to complain about here. It was well done in my view, and if it's hot, why not? It is what a lot of the public want. The scene where the Doctor spoke to her past selves put me in mind of the scene in Black Panther on the ancestral plane, and given how much Doctor Who has contributed to the sci-fi genre over the years, we can pinch a few ideas now and again if done well. I'll just pause and say I've not seen Black Panther, so I have no idea what that means, and in fact I haven't seen a lot of Marvel films, to be honest. I I have seen it, and that's a really good cut. I think that's a really good reference. Although myself, I did think of the New Adventure Revelation and a couple of other fans, and I have mentioned that as well. Hmm explosions falling buildings and gunfire not having a real world effect hardly the first time in doctor who or tv movie land this has occurred and unlikely to be the last when the adventure carries you i don't think it matters a bit like rtd said back in 2005 when he brought back the sonic screwdriver no one wants to see the doctor beaten by a door who needs real life especially over here in the uk at the moment 
Companions old and new were served very well and played their part. I definitely got a little emotional when Doctors 5 and 7 interacted with Tegan and Ace respectively. The Master was much more to my liking, got the balance right between menacing and manic. That was something I said on the episode. The tie-in with the Cybermen Masters worked well and most of the time they felt very menacing, other than on the train when they were a bit rubbish. The Daleks, however, didn't really serve that much of a purpose other than to give Ace and Graham something to do and to capture the Doctor. The Easter eggs throughout were appreciated by this fan, the only one I wasn't aware of related to Ace and the Doctor from the NA books. Enjoyed the support group set up by Graham and hello Mr. Ian Cheston, what a pleasure to see you and the others I've not mentioned. All in all, huge amount of fun plus some emotional beats in the right places. It's a 10 out of 10 for me, especially for a final regeneration story. Nice ending and teaser trailer too. Could be interesting times for the show and us fans over the next couple of years. Kind regards and keep up the good work from Martin Oates who tweets at at MJP0007. Thank you, Martin. That's a really good little summary, and I'm really glad you enjoyed that and gave it a 10 out of 10. It's, it's always great when Doctor Who's enjoyed that much. Absolutely. Uh, Rob, we now sometimes mention what we've been watching. I think we've both been watching the same thing. Should we say it on the count of three? <laughs> okay. One, two, two three. Two. And, and all. all. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good, isn't it? It's fabulous. It's really great. Yeah, look, I suspect we're going to be keen to do a... Uh, a alternate galaxies on this yes uh, so we'll save our, our bigger views but look i will say if you're not watching andor because you've been put off by a couple of the other star wars shows uh, i think this is the best that they've put out in a very long time i think rob you agree oh i do agree conversely if you want jedi whizzing lightsabers and mark hamill deep fakes and things it might not be for you but if you liked the old Star Wars EU novels, you like the idea of delving deeper into the Empire and seeing how things work. If you like Blake stuff, Seven, if you, I think that was a. I made that call to you, and you were like, "Oh yeah." And then I think the next week you were saying it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. If you like yeah. Blake Seven, this is the Star Wars for you. Yes, perfect way to put it. Yeah. So look, we'll talk more about that when it finishes. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, we don't always plug every other project we're working on, but every now and then we do like to mention some of our other podcasts. I'll mention that there are a couple more episodes of Spacefall out now as we work into Season 3 of Blake's 7. And I'll also mention that on the 1st of November, the episode of the Where All Stories in the End podcast is coming out that looks at the new adventure Bad Therapy. Uh, listeners to the podcast will know that's one of my favourite new adventure books and I do appear on that talking in a bit of length about just how much I love it. So if you're interested in that, do check out that conversation I have with Ian on the Where All Stories in the End podcast. And Rob, one of your other pieces of work is coming up to an important point. It is, it is, Dave. The Beatles World Cup podcast is almost finished the heats, which means we have gone through every Beatles song, usually in batches of four, or those, th these last few episodes we're doing batches of three, picking a winner each week, and then we'll get them into a finals sort of situation where they'll play off against each other, and that's very, very exciting. What will be the best Beatles song of all time? I don't know. We haven't recorded it yet. <laughs> Excellent, so do check that out. Now, next time, we are going to do one of our deep dives into a season of Doctor Who, but we are going to put our thumb on the scales a little bit this, this time. We're still going to let you, the audience, vote, but 
we haven't done very many Tom Baker seasons as a deep dive. In fact, of his seven, we've only done the key to time season 16. We do feel as though it's time to do another Tom Baker story. So we are only going to nominate Tom Baker seasons for this, but you still get to pick which Tom season we talk about. Rob, which two are you going to nominate? Before I say, Dave, if we pick the same ones, does it mean we're only putting out two choices? It does, yes. Right, okay. Well, I'm I'm fearful we might actually snap because I think you might like these seasons too. I'm going with season 14 and season 18. I do like those seasons, Mm -hmm. but I think there are others more interesting to talk about. So I'm nominating season 15 and season 12. Gosh, okay. So that will be up on our Twitter feed shortly after this podcast drops. Uh, please vote for which one you want to talk about. And as always, remember, you're not voting for the season that's your favourite, but the one you think will be the most interesting conversation. Yeah, I have no idea where this one will go now. No, neither do I. But look, next month we'll be back talking about Tom Baker. But until then, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. What a month. We'll speak again soon. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Damien whispered in my ear, that's the Doctor Who theme. Yes, I know which that. Is, oh, I didn't know that. I says, it's going to be good news for me <laughs> as someone who's never seen a minute of it. What is this Doctor Who story is, is that it's uh, being shifted off the ABC onto Disney, a streaming service that you have to pay money for. Take my wife, please. Da- David Kitchen, co-host of the Doctor Who show podcast. Uh, David, I assume this is you, you, someone like you will now have to go out and subscribe to Disney. Good morning. Yes, look, I don't have to because I already have a subscription to Disney and I think that a lot of Doctor Who fans who also enjoy Star Wars and Marvel and The Simpsons probably will have a subscription to Disney and it won't be that big a deal. But yeah, there will be people out there who have for their whole life got Doctor Who for free and now will have to pay for it. And, and why has this happened, David? Look, the BBC have done a global deal. So this isn't just an Australian thing, this is actually a worldwide thing. So with the exception of the UK, where they will still get Doctor Who for free on the BBC, everywhere else else in the world, the home of Doctor Who will now be Disney+. Plus. So it's a global deal, um, and they've done it, I suspect, so they can get a large input of money into the show. So, David, neither Ross nor I have ever watched a second of Doctor Who. Pitch it to us. Uh, Look, it's a show that's been going since 1963 about a time-travelling guy who travels around the universe in a police box can go anywhere in time and space. Okay. Um, any more to it? <laughs> I assume that John, John, was John Pertwee the Doctor, Doctor Who's Doctor Who? Uh, John Pertwee was probably one of the most popular Doctor Who's in Australia because his era was repeated on the ABC for about 20 years, but he was the third Doctor Who from 1970 to 1974, and I think one of the best ones. And um, that actor who was in With Nail and I, Paul McGann, I think he was Doctor Who for a while, wasn't he? Paul McGann was Doctor Who for 90 minutes. He was in the um, aborted US pilot that actually never went to series. So during um, during a gap in production, America tried to make a version of Doctor Who and uh, they cast Paul McGann and it wasn't very good and it never went to series. But he was there for a short time. Who's the best Doctor? I think William Hartnell, the first one. Right. Uh, so that takes us back to, the 19, to 1963. 1963, that's right. Fantastic. Nice to chat with you, David Kitchen co-host of the Doctor Who show podcast. He's a nice sounding bloke. Very much so. 
You've been listening to The Doctor Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>